The following live recording of Swami Vivekananda Saraswati is presented by agamayoga.com. The fifth of the Niyamas is in a certain way the most beautiful of them all. It is perhaps the coronation of them all. It has an impossibly long Sanskrit name compared to the others. Ishvara Pranidhana in one word which has various translations according to the translator, according to the tradition. Ishvara Pranidhana is bringing us back to the fundamental problem, why? That means we said the yoga science recommends that for living in harmony and peace one shall cultivate non-violence, one shall try to cultivate truthfulness, one should give up stealing and robbery and so on and so on all those beautiful things which sound so good which sound so harmonious which sound so clean after all that one should cultivate cleanliness that one should cultivate contentment that one should do tapas you remember all those things and Ishvara Pranidana is coming and telling us one very significant factor it matters also why you do things because just to do things with the wrong motivation will perhaps not solve the things. That means tapas, but tapas can be done also in demonic ways. I told you that even the black magicians can do tapas and their tapas will serve them the purpose of reaching some of their goals. But uh, purity, even people who are practicing terrible things, they can cultivate purity in diet. Just let me remind you that Adolf Hitler was a vegetarian and so was Ceausescu in my own country in the old days. Vegetarianism wouldn't automatically make someone holy, right? Although it is a pure thing. We cannot deny that vegetarian diet is the pure choice. Um, you want others, even Brahmacharya, the sexual continence that you hold your sexual energy. Even in black magic, magicians and witches are told that to succeed a certain magical operation invoking a demon or something they need not to have sex for 40 days before they need to practice brahmacharya basically you can do brahmacharya in a totally funny ways right you can do brahmacharya also because queen victoria said that a decent person shall not overdo sex or whatever because sex is after all disgusting the problem is therefore why you do all this in the name of what that means the final of the yamas and niyamas says the cornerstone the top of the pyramid the stone which keeps all others in balance is actually the motivation is the why we are coming back to the original question why do yoga why do people do yoga after all why do people wish to do yoga Therefore, Ishvara Pranidana is raising a fundamental problem. It is bringing us back to the motivation and it is bringing us back to step one. It says, some of these yamas and niyamas, you may be a perfectionist, fanatical truth-sayer. It's not necessarily going to make you spiritual. There can be people who are fanatically telling the truth and they can be very unpleasant and actually quite harmful in the society around, around them, although they just tell the truth, right? They are just 
cutting into uh, live flesh just with their truth, you know, basically it's a truth. So Ishvara Pranidana is bringing us back to this. Why? Now originally this concept of Ishvara Pranidana is either very easy to translate and to comment or very difficult. It is deep, it is beautiful, it is bringing us to our very motivation, but at the same time it's intricate. The original concept in Sanskrit comes from the two words Ishvara and Pranidana. Ishvara means actually the Lord. It is a word which resembles best in Sanskrit with the concept of God in the Western Christian type of culture. The way we say God, what we think about God, the Lord of the universe, is precisely resembling with this concept of Ishvara in the Vedic, in the old Vedic culture, in the Sanskrit culture. And Pranidhana means self-offering, giving oneself to, uh, if you prefer a more modern Osho type word, surrender. So Ishvara Pranidhana means self-offering to the Supreme, to the Absolute, to the Ultimate. It's a very difficult concept because basically it seems to point to the fact that you should do all those things which we spoke about, the other nine as we could say, in the name of God, for the sake of God, for the love of God, for the quest of God, giving yourself to the Supreme. So basically they would say if you cultivate non-violence in the name of God, it is a holy thing. If you cultivate it in the name of Queen Victoria, it's just a human thing and it has not the same effect. If you tell the truth just because it's one of the Communist Party's values that the model communist is always telling the truth, as they had some utopian ideal in the youthfulness of communism, that communists should always tell the truth and be a kind of heroes, then that is not the satya from yoga, that the motivation is actually changing the meaning of the act. So it seems to point to a fact which is very difficult to conceive by many modern minds, also given the fact that many people don't know if there is a God. They never had a proof or a clear feeling of the existence of some cosmic consciousness. Many people declare themselves as agnostics, I don't know. Many people openly declare themselves as atheists, there is no God and so on. Moreover, the problem is complicated because there is yoga even in Buddhism. There is yoga in the Southern Buddhism and even more yoga so there is in the Tibetan Buddhism. And the Tibetan Buddhism and Buddhism in general does not accept the existence of God as a person or doesn't speak about it like this. For them the highest reality is shunya, shunyata, the void, the great emptiness. And this great emptiness is actually defined, because it's very difficult to define emptiness, it is actually defined as being the Buddha nature. The Buddha nature is that ultimate thing beyond the mind which is kind of eternal. Therefore we are not talking about the God. What is surrendered to God? for a Buddhism where there is no God and yet they can do yoga and they can do yoga very well and very successfully. Therefore, obviously here we have a problem of words. This concept was created by Patanjali because Patanjali put it on paper 2500 years ago in the old Brahmanic Vedic culture which was a religious 
theistic kind of culture so normal people with small exceptions they believed in a god in a cosmic consciousness so for them it was very simple to make the long story short we can say yoga says that the last of the niyamas which makes all the other work is actually the fact that you should do it for the sake of god you should do brahmacharya you should do tapas you should stay clean and you should be non-violent but in the name of the supreme in the name of this quest for reaching the infinite for reaching the absolute still it sounds puzzling it, sta- it sounds beautiful as an idea but it still sounds very puzzling what to do if your concepts are not like that that is why it is our task to clarify this for the 21st century I mean to bring it in the language of psychology and to see what did the yogis mean by it because this means that you as a person need to have a certain mood, a certain inner state, a certain motivation for this which is that inner state which a Buddhist can have and people from different religions for whom the idea of God is different a Christian may see God as an old man floating on the clouds of heaven and a Orthodox Hindu from South India can see God as the dancing Shiva young and dynamic the ever young God the playful the God that dances quite different images after all so basically what is important in yoga is not the issue if there is a God or not because that is up to you to discover that is not something which the yogis want to tell you in advance if there is something which is defying space and time which is above space and time and which is of the nature of the infinite eternity cosmic consciousness that of course is for you to find out because if I'm telling you that there is a cosmic consciousness and that I saw it three months ago or I felt it it's a fairy tale for you you can say this guy is nuts he didn't take his pills last morning you know and therefore he he needs help but basically the yogis say you can find out by yourself that's your story you can find out you know some people look upon the infinite and they say the basic law of this universe is life we are praising life life is something infinite miraculous we don't even know scientifically what life is how it appeared so we praise the great cosmic life the life of this universe some people would say it's an excellent definition this life of the universe may be called God some people would call this universal force which has a kind of intelligence which is rising the trees and the bodies and everything it would call it the supreme consciousness some people will go into the up into the philosophical things and say the highest thing I would call it the absolute it's an abstract concept exactly as the Vedantins of India they call it Brahman Brahman means the absolute it means something which is not relative it's not two of it it's not opposed to anything it is not plus or minus it is not subjected to duality it's beyond time it has no past no present no future it's beyond space and time it's, this is a philosophical concept which may come from Plato and Plotin and the old Greek philosophers and go all the way to Hegel and Kant to define an absolute something which is beyond matter and energy but uh, we are not interested in this really now that means what is your concept of the absolute of the highest for some people this concept is God for some people is uh, just a supreme energy a kind of unified field of energy like in physics 
for some people it can mean uh, other and other things like life this is not really important the yogis tell to us and I would say that Ramakrishna in India was the first one who came with this liberating modern way Ramakrishna was a miraculous man he was perhaps the first Hindu who tried really to show that there is no at all sectarism at all that you should be open for example Ramakrishna reached the highest states of mind through yoga and after he reached these highest states of consciousness the nirvana as we call it he tried to explore it on other parts so somebody came and he says yeah it's right you knew this but you know whatever you explore there in your yoga cannot compare with the salvation which we Muslims experience we have the grace of Allah and this is really a big thing it's not so Ramakrishna like a child said really then I would like to know because you know I'm searching for the highest for the ultimate so if you have something which I don't know or I haven't reached if there is a grace of this infinite existence which I can reach open my mind even more oh boy I would like to have it teach me your way so Ramakrishna dressed like a Muslim started going to the mosque he didn't visit the Hindu temples like they were heathen he started behaving like a Muslim making five prayers a day to Mecca and stuff like this and in three days he reached Samadhi of course he was already open for him the nadis and the chakras were open so for him it was just a matter of three days and in three days he reached Samadhi and then he told to that guy I am happy to announce you that your path and the path which I have practiced before they have the same end I have done your path till the end and I have had the vision of this ultimate that we call Allah and it's the same with what I found so it's the same top of the mountain for everybody only that it's seen from different parts then somebody came to Ramakrishna and said yeah bollocks all this but you have not seen the grace of the Christian God Jesus, the Virgin Mary, some Catholic stuff and um, Ramakrishna dressed like a Christian started worshipping Virgin Mary and the child and prayed to it and it took another three days he did nothing else no yoga, no Hinduism, no worship, no puja no Allah, no nothing he just did this three days and he reached again Samadhi the same and he said to this man I am very happy to announce you that I have done this spiritual experiment and I have reached the conclusion that your spiritual line also reaches to the same absolute which I have discovered in the beginning and I have had the realization of your path and I am again and again happy to confirm and to reconfirm that there is only one truth that there is only one reality after all truth with a capital T cannot be in two ways, right? truth is the ultimate that means we are all searching for the truth, aren't we? that means we, may, we can make philosophy if there is a reincarnation or there isn't but the truth is only one it cannot be that there is and there isn't we are not living in an absurd world we are living in a world governed by quite clear laws so everybody would say, look, whatever my religion or whatever my atheistic, skeptical frame of mind says, I would really like to know the truth. Because the truth liberates you, says Jesus. Know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. So basically, ultimately, either we are religious persons or not, we are searching for the truth of our existence. We are searching for the truth of this reality. This reality is mysterious. We don't know what we were before being born. 
We don't really know what will happen with us after we die. We don't know who we are and where we come from, and we don't know why we live, and if there is a cosmic consciousness that created this universe, and what is our relationship with this cosmic consciousness, and if we have some contact or some evolution, where are we in the big picture? That is why Ramakrishna said, Ishvara Pranidana, in fact, it means nothing else that some people are born and cultivate a kind of thirst for the truth, an unquenchable thirst for the truth. In simple words, you would say that some people are curious, you know, they cannot sleep before they don't find the truth. Some people say, ah, interesting, yeah, okay, let's go and eat something. And some people say, no, 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 this is touching me indeed, because yesterday I stayed all night and I couldn't sleep, and I thought, is this really so? I must really know. I cannot live in this kind of ignorance. That means uh, Ramakrishna even gave it as a beautiful example. He said, there comes a disciple to the Guru and says, Guruji, when shall I know the absolute truth? And the Guru, being a very practical person, says, come with me and I'll show you when. So he takes him in the boat, they sail on the river or lake, whatever it was there, and then the Guru, and the pupil obeys always because he is eager to get the teaching, the Guru says, jump a little bit in the water to get this teaching. So the pupil jumps in the water, and when he is in the water, the Guru catches him by the hair, <coughs> pushes him down, and holds him a really long time under the water, until the guy is about to drown. So when he is about to drown, the Guru pulls him up, the guy spits, vomits, whatever, coughs. When he recovers, the Guru tells him, now tell me your first impression. What did you feel when you are down there in the water? And the pupil says, I felt an irrepressible urge to breathe, because I felt that if I don't breathe, I'm going to die. And the Guru tells him, in the moment when you are going to feel the same irrepressible urge to know the truth, you'll see, you'll reach enlightenment. It's as simple as this. That means you, first of all, you must want. Doesn't Jesus says, knock and the door shall be open. Ask and it shall be given to you. And it isn't it very clear that if you ask, it is given, but first you must ask. That means if you are not curious, how should the answer come to you? That means what? It means that some people have this urge. Maybe it's a curse, maybe it's a blessing, but a number of people on this planet, they are born with this kind of curiosity. I really have to know. Some people say, nah, I can sleep very easy, no, don't worry, don't bother me with this. And some people say, well, maybe it's not significant to you, but to me, it is very significant. I have to know. Ramakrishna was not a fake prophet when he said this. This is how he was. Since childhood, he was considered to be a mad child. He had an enormous curiosity to find out what the nature of reality is. He worshipped, he did everything. For example, at some point in his childhood, he discovered that the only thing which was available to him was to practice the worship of the goddess of time, the symbol of time, goddess Kali, the black goddess of India, which is actually a symbol of time. So Ramakrishna did it in his own Indian way, with worship, with ritual, with things there, almost like a religious phenomenon with some meditations. And he did it for 12 years. That was specified there. And everybody thought, this young boy is nuts, you know, he doesn't want to get himself a wife, doesn't want to make children, he stays there and sings all day long, and it's a bit nutty, you know, it's not really... 
and even his family thought he was crazy. His mother at some time says, take him to the brothel in Calcutta and give him some girl because maybe if he ejaculates, he cools down a little bit, has too much term in his balls, you know, and so on. I mean, really, the family thought the boy was nuts. And he didn't seem to have any system in what he was doing. He was improvising and doing, and many people got almost outraged that this boy was too courageous, doing uh, like too much, you know, improvising in the religious ritual and so on. But you know what? Ramakrishna actually was very calculated in things, in a way, because in the day when he fulfilled 12 years to the day, he went to the temple which still exists in Dakshineshwar, north of Calcutta, in the northern suburbs of Calcutta today, and he went in front of the statue of Kali which he was worshipping, and he spoke to the goddess as if she was alive. He never had any, I mean, for her, she was just the object of love, of devotion, like for every religious person. He stayed down in front of the statue and he said, Mother, today there is 12 years since I have been worshipping you. Since, ever since my childhood, I have done everything I could to find out the truth about existence, who I am and what the meaning of all this thing is. This is the only path which I found, so I did it. And you and I know perfectly well both that I did it well, that I did more than was required from me, that I didn't shirk, I didn't play truant in any way. So today, it's 12 years, to the day. If today I'm not reaching the enlightenment, I'm going to commit suicide, because I refuse to live a life in which I don't know why I live. I'm not an animal. I refuse to live a life in which I don't know who I am. So it's up to you. I have done my move. Now it's your move. If you exist. If you don't exist, tough luck. It means it's all a stupidity. So he stayed down. He meditated. He didn't get any vision, any result. And when he finished that, he says that in that he was so determined to curb his life that he felt like his heart was like a piece of wet cloth that was twisting like this and so on. He was anguished completely. And when he finished that meditation, he stood up with determination and he jumped to take the sword because the goddess Kali has a sword put in her hand. So he wanted to take that sword and to stab himself to death with that sword. And in that moment, in this state of amazing thing, he saw the goddess move, she became alive for him, for his excited vision, and he had the first vision of Kali. He entered in a state of ecstasy, he reached form of super-consciousness. Ever since that day, Ramakrishna was known as one of the greatest saints of Bengal. He was able to perform miracles, to see the future, to do a lot of incredible things. And he reached this state, and later on he even reached the Supreme Enlightenment. And therefore, he was not a false prophet. He simply said, some people are tortured by this need to know the truth. This is what makes us human. This is what makes us a part. The fact that we have a consciousness, the fact that we ask ourselves, the fact that we don't want just to eat and sleep, there must be more to it. Swami Shivananda says on the cover of one of his books, eating, sleeping, procreating, a little joy, a lot of tears, is this all that there is to life? He says there must be more. And he says, wake up. He says, don't live like worms on the surface of this earth. You are something else, you can become something else. Life is much more than this. It cannot be just this. And we know that it cannot be just this. That is why Ramakrishna says, 
Ishvara Pranidhana is that feature where a human being has in him this wish to understand the truth, to know the truth indeed, and considers that one cannot stay, one must make some efforts. This is again a thing which may sound as madness, because some people will never understand it. That is why I say always to my pupils, if you are into this category, don't be afraid, because you are not the first and not the last. Look at the spiritual history of this planet. People like Buddha ran away from home, from their wife and children to reach Nirvana, to reach the truth. Nobody could tell them that there is a Nirvana. Nobody could show them in advance that it exists. They didn't have any proof. They wouldn't have any guarantee. It was like jumping in the emptiness, jumping without a safety net. They didn't know what will happen. And yet they did. The history of this planet is full of men and women who took this brave step to throw themselves into this adventure, to go into it, and everybody said, you are crazy, why did you do this? Even Rumi, the great Arab poet, he says at some point, today I have found you, and those who mocked and scorned me yesterday, today they are sorry that they didn't look the same way I looked. Because until yesterday, everybody said Rumi is stupid. They look at it. Instead of making a business and making some money, he is sitting and doing meditation. And he said, today, they are sorry that they didn't look the way I have looked. Because today, I have found. That means, there is a spirit of spiritual adventure in some people. And I say, how many of them there are? I wouldn't really know to tell you. Perhaps 1% of the people of this planet... They are born with this strange characteristic that they are searching for something which other people consider unnecessary or stupid. It's not a disease. It's not a madness. Buddha had it. Ramakrishna had it. Shivananda had it. When Shivananda was 35 years old, his wife died. He was a doctor in Malaysia, just somewhere here, nearby. And Swami Shivananda, when his wife died, then he realized that he doesn't know anything. There was his death, there was his wife dead, his love, he had two children, didn't know anything. And Shivananda did the unthinkable, he would be considered a bit irresponsible today. He left his children and all his wealth to his brother, he said, take my children and grow them, I'm gone. And he went to the Himalayas, he took the first boat to India, he pilgrimed through India, he stopped in Rishikesh, he became a great yogi, he reached enlightenment, and he did whatever he did. I told you so many stories about him. That means he was simply possessed by this urge that he must find whatever the price, whatever other people say, let everybody say that I am crazy. Actually, it is very important if I understand or not. He was not alone. The list can continue. Look at the people in Christianity, the fathers of desert and so on, people who ran in caves and in deserts and mountains and so on, to be alone with the nature, to be alone with the infinite. Who could guarantee to them that they would succeed? Nobody. You can say, oh, these people are crazy, you know, to run alone in the desert. Who will give you food? Who will give you water? Where will you live? What will you do? It's really a crazy thing, right? For those who don't understand it, it's like a disease. And Ramakrishna says, yes, indeed, Ramakrishna, when he first met a guru, he had a woman guru in the beginning. His first guru was a tantric woman who taught him the tantric techniques. And the first thing which Ramakrishna, he was so clean, he was so pure, so candid, he went straight to this woman and said, mother, he addressed her as mother, 
and he said, Mother, please tell me if I'm crazy. My family tells that I'm crazy, most people believe that I'm a bit nuts, and sometimes I must admit even I start believing that I'm a bit crazy, because I'm looking for things which other people don't seem to be interested. Whatever interests other people seems to turn me off, and I'm interested in some things which for them are very, very immaterial. So he says, tell me if I'm crazy, if this is a form of mental illness. And this woman, she was a bit elderly, very experienced woman, she started laughing and she said, my son, blessed is the man upon whom falls such a madness. She said, you don't look around yourself. She said, the whole world is crazy. Only that they are crazy for other reasons. People are crazy for their pleasure, for their children, for their money, for their reputation, for their job. I mean, you will always find a reason for whom anybody would go crazy and kill you. If you offend their family, if you take their money, if you insult their country, if you do, they will get crazy. And they consider that their madness is called solidarity, patriotism, realism, whatever. They give good names to it, but they are crazy. And he said, how can they understand if one is crazy in his love for God, in the wish to find the truth? They cannot, because for them only their madness is justified. Their form of madness is okay. If you defend your family, I respect you because I also defend my family and I think it's right that you should kill anybody who is trying to affect your family. But you don't look that somebody might feel in a different way. Therefore, she said, the whole world is crazy. Look. And she said, you are blessed if you have this rare form of madness in which you actually are searching for the truth, for the absolute. And that is why Ramakrishna, in the later of his life, he addressed, he commented upon the saying of Bhairavi Brahmani, this woman, in such a beautiful way, he addressed it in such an amazing way that it is rising a question for everybody. Ramakrishna says at some point, people in this world cry for a lot of ridiculous reasons. They cry for their money, they cry for their family, they cry for their lost reputation, they cry for their pleasures, they cry for a lot of things. But how many, says Ramakrishna, how many of you have ever cried because you don't know God, because you don't know who you are? Because that's a real tragedy. That somebody stole $4,000 from your pocket, or that you have been sacked in your job, or that your girlfriend left you, that is a reason to be sad. But the reason that you are alive and you don't know who you are and who sent you here and what are you meant to be, that's a real tragedy because all your life is lost on that. So he says if you cry for a thousand dollars, you should bang your head against the walls for the other one because the other one is really much more severe, much more grave. But people don't see it, right? People don't seem to see the priority to understand that there is something serious in this life, that you can actually consider life very seriously. So Ramakrishna says, how many of you, in crying for so many things from the first candy for which you cried when you were a child because you didn't get it, and until today when you cry for emotions and money and whatever, how many of you have stopped to cry because you don't know who you are? That's a reason to cry. Therefore, you see, this attitude that there is a yearning for the truth, for some people is amazing. I mean, some people in this history, when you look at spiritual history, see that some people would not go from this. They will consider it's the rock. It is the priority. It's the number one thing of life. If you don't know this, how can you think about other things and keep this ignoring? 
Let's give you another example to see that it's always there. Sadhu Sundar Singh, very few people know that India gave to the world even a Christian saint. Uh, Sikh, these people with turbans from India, a Sardar guy, Sundar Singh, from some Amritsar, some place in northwest India. His mother was member, was convert to one of these Christian sects, some Protestant, whatever, Baptist, Evangelist type of sect. Preachers, you know, missionaries who try to convert everybody to Christianity, including in India. And his father was a stout Sardar, a stout Sikh from the Sikh religion. And these people are really tough. They have a big Manipura. Even today, they are the backbone of the Indian army, of the Indian police, they, of the Indian Air Force. They deal with mechanics, with motorcycles. They are very Manipuristic. Everything with techniques and Manipura is mostly the Sikhs in India who are the best. So they are a very strong community, very warlike. So there was split in the family. The father was a fanatic Sikh, anyhow, a devoted Sikh. The mother was a devout Christian. Sadhu Sundar Singh was split between the devotion to his father and the traditions of India and the devotion to his mother, which every Indian boy loves so dearly by tradition. When he was 16, his mother died. And he got in such a fit of rage that he never got to talk to her, that there was this split in the family. He was so frustrated that he took all the objects of his mother and threw them in fire. And lastly, he even threw her Bible, which he knew she loved the Bible so much, she respected it as a holy book. And the Sikhs have a very big respect for books. They also have their own holy books, which they praise as gurus. And when he did this, he suddenly had a vision. He like had a vision of Jesus or something and he got shocked because he realized that actually he doesn't know, he is acting in an organic way he doesn't know if his father is right if his mother was right if both are right or if none of them is right he is actually bound to believe what other people believe but he does not know he himself through his own experience it's like when you taste oranges and you say oranges they are good, I like oranges, it's for me or you don't but he didn't taste the orange so to say, he didn't know and therefore he entered into a deep spiritual crisis and he was young and very fiery person and so on so in desperation he remembered the thing that in the Sikh books it was written that whoever in this world will ask an answer from the cosmic consciousness for 72 hours non-stop without eating or sleeping that is three days non-stop will get a guidance an answer some sign and then Sundar Singh locked himself into a room at the age of 16 and he said if in the end of the third day I have not received any answer to know what the truth is I shall throw myself in front of the morning express train because I refuse to live a life in which I don't know what I am and what the truth is I refuse to live like an animal he spent three days in prayer in a kind of delirium trying, trying, trying nothing happened and when at four o'clock in the morning or whatever it was he stood up to go to the railway to throw himself in front of the train because he meant business he was not faking and in the moment when he stood up he had the vision of Jesus in an aura of light he was spontaneously enlightened he reached the state of Samadhi he became a great prophet he healed, he healed lepers by the mere touch of the hand he preached Christianity even in Tibet in between the Tibetan Lamas he 
he visited European countries and he said an incredible, he is the author of an incredible saying, he, somebody they paid him to travel to in the 1920 or 30, he went to the European countries which were supposed to be the cradle of Christianity and he visited the Christian countries and when he came back he said a very big word, he said I visited the Christian countries and found no Christians which expressed indeed his real feeling that everything was hypocrisy, that there was no real thing, it was just social things. He made even prophecies, he is one of the Indian prophets who made incredible prophecies about the future of the world and many of them have been fulfilled to the number by now. Uh, and I'm telling you this because you see Sundar Singh also, he meant business, he was afflicted with this thing, I mean he could not live, he would even give his life in the search of this. He simply needed to know that is the most precious thing. That is why the yogis say, don't be worried. You know, it's the case of people coming to yoga. They come to yoga and they don't know why, but it tickles them in this funny way, you know, and they feel like, uh-oh, I'm, I'm sliding slowly into something which is very dangerous. In Rishikesh, I had tens of people who came to yoga for one day and then, then they stayed for years in yoga and they are still there. And they told me always things like this, you know, we both love you and fear you and hate you at the same time because you are spoiling our lives. We came here just to make a little bit of hanky-panky and now we know we cannot go home and do the same thing as we did before. Our life will change. We had all kinds of crazy plans and now we'll have to change them. So you are destroying our lives, building it again in some other way, but definitely ruining a lot of our illusions and hopes and so on. And people are a bit like afraid, you know, whoa, you know, it's what's happening to me. Yoga is telling you, don't be afraid. It is simply this factor. It is called, we call it in yoga, the translation which we found best for this Ishvara Pranidhana is aspiration. That some people have aspiration. They are born with spiritual aspiration. They don't know why, but as soon as they hear this thing, click. They click on. For them it rings a bell immediately. And they know it's true and they know it's what they want to do. And everybody says, oh, you are crazy, how could you, you are entering into a sect or a cult or something. And then they say, you don't really know what you are talking about. It's simply like we are two different worlds a part of this. The yogis say it's not a madness. Ramakrishna had it, Sundar Singh had it, everybody had it. All the people who have been something in spirituality, they had first of all aspiration. Because it's impossible if you don't aspire. You need to yearn. It's something which is not obvious. It is something which it simply comes and you say, okay, I must look into this. I want to look into this. That is why the yogis would tell you, don't be afraid. Because aspiration is not abnormal. It's just irrational. That means until today, nobody was able to find an explanation why some people have aspiration and some people don't have. It's a bit like why some people are born intelligent and some, some people less intelligent, or why some people are born handicapped and some people I don't know what. It's like nature is unfair. The yogis have tried to rationalize this fact, but they didn't give a satisfying explanation, because that explanation cannot be proven. It is using another paradox, another great thing. Yet the yogis have said that the only explanation for aspiration is the age of the soul. That means they said young souls are like young babies. That means they said that out of you here, if we admit that we have all going through the circle of reincarnation, some of you have been human beings for 30 lives. This is your 31st life as a human being. 
And some of you have been human beings for 3,000 lives already spinning in this circle. The difference is that one of you is young and like a baby, try to grab everything, to bite on it and to do things. And it's like you are eager for experiences. And some of you have been rich and poor, kings and beggars, men and women, virtues and sinners and saints and whatever, and you have seen it all in thousands of lives. And in your subconscious mind, there's a beard, this thing like, whoa, 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 you know, nothing really attracts me. I mean, yes, it's beautiful, it's wonderful, but like, it's like there must be something else. It's the difference between an elderly soul which has seen it all and says, what else is there? There must be some freedom out of this circle, else it will get boring. It's like Groundhog Day, this famous movie, where a guy is reliving the same day, time and again, and eventually it gets boring. First he is elated, but then he just wants to finish it, to stop it. And therefore, the only explanation the yogis have found, they simply say some people are young souls, and they don't yet feel this urge, and some people are old souls, and they have it. That means, don't worry, those who don't have it will get it. It's just a matter of time, that's all. This is, of course, not an explanation in itself, because nobody can prove that there exists uh, successive lives, reincarnation, and so on. So you cannot accept it as a realistic explanation. But still, it's the only one which is the closest they could come to an explanation. That there is a difference in the age of the soul, in the quality of the soul. That is why the yogis say, if you have aspiration, cultivate it. Because this aspiration is magic, you know. We can always ask ourselves, what is this factor? I mean, how could a man like Buddha leave his family and go in the forest for nothing, for a dream, you know, for a chimera, you know, nobody before him saw it. You know, why, why should Ramakrishna do this? Why should all these people do this? How did they know? How did they have the intuition that they will find something? That afterwards they came and they said, I found, I'm blessed, you know, I have seen the infinite. How did they know? Where, where does this intuition come from? It's not a rational thing. That is why here we have a great mystery. The great yogis are telling us this is exactly what makes us human. That means the more you are apart from the animal nature, the more you are not satisfied with just drinking and eating and sleeping. You just say, okay, I'm eating and sleeping and I'm doing like... But I'm deeply dissatisfied. There is a hole in my life. There is something which is not fulfilled. What else shall I do? That means this, this, this. It's like I have tasted it all. It's like I have eaten too many times this dish. There must be something else as well. That is why the yogis say that this is a great quality. That some people are born with aspiration. And that the more spiritual experience you have, the more this aspiration grows. It's like the more you awaken spiritually, it's like a magnet, you know, the, cl the closer you come to it, the more it attracts you. It's like a whale. The more you come in the middle of the vortex, the more it sucks you in. It's like the first step is really difficult to wake up, to take a bit of test, to try a little bit. And then you start realizing that, wow, there is here something. That means this aspiration is really a magical thing. You know, where does it come? What makes us human? You know, if you ask scientists, there is in science a concept in physics which is called entropy and entropy is like the measure of the disorder and uh, the physicists say entropy is positive, it increases 
That means the universe goes into chaos. That means everything goes from order to chaos. Example, you build this building in a thousand years, or ten perhaps, it will be down. Bunch of rubble. You will never have a bunch of rubble which will turn into a building. It never goes that way. It only goes from order to disorder. Even the pyramids will be reduced to sand. But sand will not build the pyramids. That means there is a certain way of action of the elements of nature which makes that there is one direction, the increasing of the chaos. And in the middle of this universe in which certain acts are irreversible, they go from order to chaos. Life, for example, is exactly the opposite. That's why life is a paradox for physics. And in physics we say life is a local contradiction of the law of entropy. Because life takes chaotic matter and turns it into organization. Moreover, when intelligence is there, intelligence takes things and builds, and even animals build dams on the rivers and things like this, like the beavers and others. So basically, the life is making order out of chaos, extracting matter, building it in silicon chips and computers and so on, creating order out of chaos. What is this thing which consciousness gives us, which contradicts? Because see, this tendency, entropy, is actually what is called in yoga, you will discover, tamas, the way of inertness, that some people just want to take a remote control, sit in front of the television and become potato couch potatoes, you know, just sit there and suddenly your head will cave in because there is no more brain. You become just a total inert non-entity, incapacity of action, you know, laziness, like lie low and die, you know, just wait for your death to come. It's this tendency that you, you will not fight. You see, we in the human being, we have a double nature. On one hand we have this animal part, and on the other hand we have something inside which we call the spirit, the mind, the intelligence, whatever, which sometimes fights even against the nature. Your nature says, ah, it's late, sleep. And your mind or spirit or whatever it is, it says, no, you haven't finished your meditation, you have a tapas to do today, right? So you, haven't, so you cannot sleep, first you do your tapas and then you sleep. Your animal says, ah, oh, eat something, I'm so hungry. And your spirit says, no, you determine you are going to fast today, right? So no food, yes, you are hungry, but resist, fight it. Your animal says, oh, let's ejaculate, you know, the sexual energy. And your spirit says, no, Brahmacharya, I want to hold it back. I'm not going to give way to it. That means if there is in us like a rebel, a factor which rebels the nature, rebels the body. The body is just going to Tohu Vabohu, as they say in the Jewish text, you know, the great chaos, the outer darkness. It just rots because it's a piece of meat. But the spirit wants more. This is exactly one of the great mysteries, this concept of entropy. What makes us stand up against chaos, build order? You see, uh, if you are to believe materialistic uh, people who say that we come from monkeys and we are just the result of a chemical accident on this planet, life is just a mixture of uh, molecules, chemistry, I'm not going to the details of that. And basically what is the issue? Why are we human? Ah, we are human because we have 46 chromosomes. If you listen to the 
scientists and these anthropologists or whatever they are, they would tell you that we had 48 chromosomes before when we were monkeys, baboons, whatever, orangutans, whatever we were. And then by a freak genetical accident, those monkeys lost two chromosomes in some funny way. And then we got to a being with 46 chromosomes, which is the human being. Hooray, here we are, beautiful and intelligent. Really. So it's the 46 chromosomes which make us human, that we stand up, we are really. You would be curious to know that experience contradicts this. Example, in India, in Africa, and in many other places, but mostly in these places, we know that has happened quite often, the accident that children have been lost in the jungle. And children lost in the jungle, perhaps 90% of them were died or were eaten by some wild animals. But a few of them survived. And you'd be surprised to know that some of these wild children were found out by men later. For example, in India they found out a girl and a boy in totally different circumstances, who one of them was grown, the boy was grown by the wolves. There was a mother wolf who gave him milk exactly like in the book of the jungle, like in the Mowgli story. But you know what? That boy didn't become a Mowgli. It became a wolf. His spine was crippled beyond redemption. He could not stand on two legs. His hands were turned into claws at the age of five years or six years old. He had fur grown on the back of the hands. He basically was a wolf. Even his jaw was developed more. He was, he could, they could never make him speak. They could never make him eat like human beings with a full hand or with some instrument. He could never stand up. He could never understand any way of communication. This, this much for the 46 chromosomes throw the king of the nature with 46 chromosomes between the wolves and it becomes a wolf and it has happened with all the wild kids none of them became Tarzan the lord, the lord of the apes this is a utopia none of them became Mowgli they became animals so it's not the chromosomes which make us human it is all that boring stuff which says sit up straight pick up your feet don't beat your sister write only with the right hand all the nagging discipline and social rules because without them if you put a human being between the animals it will not discover the alphabet and it will not even discover how to speak that is the very interesting thing therefore this factor by which we become human beings is not contained in the body and in the genes it is something which comes from the others and which we inherit from generation to generation ethics, morality the rules of the society like the laws of Manu and uh, spirituality all kind of things are there and if we study history we're actually going to see that all this came from some wise primordial people all these things like the laws of Manu they came from enlightenment like the code of laws of Hammurabi and they came from some great spiritual beings this is what makes us human not the chromosomes that is why the yogis say yes there is in the human being a rebel something which is not of this world this spirit and while your body is a piece of flesh and by the laws of physics it goes down entropy it just wants to lie down and lie become apple pie become lazy and rot there is in you a kind of dynamo an electric thing which is opposing to this and who says no 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 I cannot stay I don't want to die I want what is this thing which is non-entropic because this is obviously not a material factor you cannot identify it materially that is why the great yogis they tell to us this is what makes us human if you don't have this wish to understand truth 
to understand the reality, to understand who you are and in what kind of world you live, you are hardly a human being because eating and procreating the animals can do. You just watch on National Geographic the way a lioness is licking her cub. Our beautiful maternity, right? What is this? This is just the praising of the animal instincts. Animals can do that also. We are not better than that if we do only that. There is something which only we humans do. Like we do philosophy. We yearn for the infinite. We dream. We are poets. We use our intelligence. We are creators. That is where this factor is. That is why Ramakrishna, Ramakrishna was so compassionate. He was such a loving person that one day when he saw two people fighting on the street, there was a man beating a coolie in India, and when he saw that guy whipping the coolie, he started screaming because he could feel the pain on his own back. And when they brought him home and took off his shirt, he was red on the back, he had red marks on the back, although he was not touched physically. So compassionate he was that he could feel the pain of another person and take it on his body. This Ramakrishna, so compassionate, so universal, so loving, has said a hard word. He said, it is born in vain, he, who after having been born as a free human being, without defect or flaw, does not search for his spiritual realization. He said, you are wasting your life. If you are born as a human being and don't search at least a little bit for the meanings, to ask at least from time to time, who am I? Why am I here? What is the meaning? Why am I I? Why do I feel I and I don't feel you? What makes the difference? What is the mystery of this? If you don't ask yourself, you are born in vain. Very hard statement. It's like your life is worth nothing. And listen to the Tibetan yogis, what they have to say. Tibetan yoga says, one life spent in search of the truth is more valuable than 10,000 lives spent in a cosmic aeon doing nothing. That means the other 10,000 lives just wasted time. One life spent in the search of the truth is more valuable than a whole cosmic aeon of lives in which you just make kids and drink papaya juice or whatever. It's nothing. The spiritual thing is what makes us human after all. That's why the yogis say, don't be afraid. Ishvara Pranidana is the voice of your soul. It's finally that you have reached to a level where there is something in you which is asking for its right. Because in us, there is this little rebel. There is this something and we try to choke it. When we are young, we have enthusiasm, we have energy, and we say, oh yes, I want a big adventure. And then after 20 years you meet with someone and you are just a settled down bourgeois yuppie and people ask you, what have you done? I remember you were very keen, meditation, yoga, doing... Uh, yes, I was young, you know, at that time, but now I grew up and... This is like you admit death. It's like you admit defeat. The yogi is saying you have to keep this voice because this is the voice of the soul. This is the Atman, what the yogis call Atman, the real self inside which talks. That is why the yogis would say, blessed is the one who has aspiration. This is what makes the whole difference. Think, people with aspiration, these people with this genius, with this creativity, who were able to spend years painting or painting, you know, who didn't do what the other people, the creators, people who searched like 30 years, the fury husband, searching for radium and so on in laboratory, people who really believed in an idea, who really could give up some of this comfort searching for an idea. 
So basically the yogis are telling us this is coming from the soul. This is the real voice of the soul. If you choke it, it's like to betray yourself. There are people, I have met people who say, oh I had this, now I feel I don't have it. And then it's like you feel, you know, a claw on your heart, like your heart, like your heart is hardening, you know, it's like you gave up the battle too early. It was Gurdjieff who said at some point that some people are biologically alive, but they are more like zombies. They are actually spiritually dead because they stopped searching, they stopped seeking. That is why the yogis favor very much this. One yoga guru was asked, what is the spiritual quality that you value most in your pupils? What would you like that your pupils should have more? And he unhesitatingly answered, the pupils that I would ideally like most should have aspiration. Aspiration. If you have aspiration, it means you are searching, you are a seeker, you want to find the truth. That is ultimately the truth of it. So the yogis say when you have aspiration, all yoga becomes yours. Everything which you make out of aspiration is well done. If you do non-violence or if you cultivate truthfulness or brahmacharya or out of aspiration, just because you want to know the truth, you want to understand more, that is beautiful. That is the right motivation for doing things in this life. That is why the yogis praise so much this and they say don't deny it, don't try to choke it. There were yogis who said, if you have this voice and then you say, no, but I have a family, I have obligations, I can't do this, shut up you stupid, you know, I'm a bit crazy, no. It's like you betray yourself. And some yogis said, I will have seen cases of people who did this and after 10 years they died of cancer. It's simply like your soul gets upset and says, you don't want to give me what I want, I will show you who is the master of this house. I will not play ball, I'm going, then let's see, what will you do? Can you live without me? No. So you have to give me, the priority is the soul, is your own spirit. Therefore you cannot betray your spirit. If to live without it is to live like a prostitution, to, to use your life for something else. That's why the yogi says trust in this voice of the heart. You are not the first and not the last on this planet. It's natural. It sounds irrational. You don't know why you have it and some others don't have it. But it is there for a good purpose and it is a blessing after all. To show you how beautiful it is, let us quote from Patanjali, the last quote of Patanjali. Patanjali says, through the perfect practice of Ishvara Pranidhana, Samadhi results. He said it all. He said the only thing which you need to reach Samadhi is this one, aspiration. If you frantically wish to reach it, you will reach it. It will come in meditation and you will reach it. That is the key of everything. That is why the yogi say, don't be afraid of the voice of your heart. It may sound odd for you. It may look weird for others why you do what you do. Don't listen. You are not them and they are not you. You shouldn't leave your mind after the minds of other people. If something which is not new on this planet, read spiritual literature, it's the voice of the heart, it's the voice of the self. And the yogis would say, it is this factor which is making us rebels in this universe, which is making us 
human, it is the same concept, it is the same as also Rajneesh. He said that his pupils should be a mixture between Buddha and Zorba the Greek. I don't know if you saw the movie Zorba the Greek, but Zorba was a kind of rebel, an original person. So he said, I want to create a person which is Zorba the Buddha. This is exactly what it is, the rebel. He even has this concept that one should be a rebel, rebel against all these stupid rules and things, and listen to the voice of your heart. That's what the yogis have said, and this is codified under the beautiful name of Ishvara Pranidhana. I could speak much more because all the yoga and all the spirituality of this world is about this. This is the motivation. And when people have this, they are ready to do whatever. Some people have tons of it, and they will do anything. Some people have a flickering little flame, and they don't know if to trust in it or not. Cultivate it through yoga, don't let it die, listen to it because after all it is your life and you don't want to live other people's lives. You will see that the more you practice, the more you become pure, this thing awakens in you and you understand more, you see more, and therefore the yogi say it's a priceless treasure you are having in you, this aspiration for the truth. Either you are a religious person and you look upon this like surrender to God, go to the ultimate of God, or you are a non-theistic person and you just conceive of an infinite, of an absolute, of something eternal, which is not necessarily a person, but which represents a supreme reality, like the top of the pyramid of this universe, it doesn't really matter. What matters is that in you, it feels like this beautiful search for the truth. In Indian Tantra, in North Indian Tantra, in Kashmirian Tantra, they describe this feeling very beautifully. They describe it as the feeling of mystery. That means they say that sometimes people are thrilled by mystery. You know, some people say, uh, yeah, right, yeah, interesting. Uh, and some people, when something is mysterious, Wow, you know, I can almost cry, I get goose pimples, I hear about something like, I don't know what, you know, there are so many things, forbidden science, maybe this earth is hollow and there is a civilization on the inside, there is other forms of intelligence, there are other parallel universes, can we communicate with angels or not, do there exist such other levels of consciousness, can human beings get out of the body, move in the astral world, is there the possibility to see the past, the future, whatever, there are so many mysteries we hear about, and some people are thrilled, they are immediately electrified, they feel there is, and some people say, oh, yeah, all right, yeah, mm. yeah, interesting, yeah, sure, and it doesn't touch them, this feeling of mystery, that everything is mysterious, that always there is a new mystery, that actually we live into the unknown, is so beautiful, this is actually the feeling of aspiration. That is why in Kashmirian Tantra, in North Indian Tantra, they even have this kind of thing, meditate on everything as being a mystery. They say, wait for this hour when it's twilight and the sun sets, sit down, look at the nature, and start realizing that the whole nature is so mysterious, that the universe is mysterious. Meditate upon the mystery, and you'll see what gives, that your Sahasrara will get big, and you'll feel a lot of things, and you'll feel how you become awakened spiritually. Because even this feeling of mystery, which prompts scientists and researchers to go into the mystery, 
is beautiful. Albert Einstein, you will see it in a quoting in the papers of this week, Albert Einstein says, the most high spiritual feeling that I can describe of, he said, is the feeling of mystery. It is exactly this mystical feeling of mystery, that we live in an incomprehensible universe, we don't understand the will of this incomprehensible universe, and yet we are in the middle of a great intelligence, we are created by something super intelligent, super conscious, and he said, this is my humble conception of God. Albert Einstein, and not to speak about others and others of the huge scientists of this planet, who had the clear feeling of this reality. That is the paradoxical thing, that people usually believe that scientists should be skeptical and non-religious, but when you look, Albert Einstein was, Niels Bohr was, Werner Heisenberg was, Dirac was, Schrödinger was, I mean, all the huge ones of relativity, quantics, of all the big thing revolutions in science, I just mentioned a few names, some Georgi and others and others, the list is endless almost, all of them were actually deeply religious. When a journalist asked Werner Heisenberg, how is it possible that a great scientist like you can believe in God? And Werner Heisenberg looked at him and he said, my dear, I don't believe in God. He said, I know for sure about the existence of God. To me, he said, it's not a belief. It's just the absolute logical conclusion when you study this universe that there is a supreme consciousness. It's just you that you don't see it. That is why only people who are, you know, the kind of wiseacre, half-educated, you know, person who has uh, done a university, has a degree in science, and he thinks now he's a big knowledgeable scientist just because he got an MA in science or something like this, and then he preaches, oh, there's no God, we are atheistic, we are... But those one who went over the top and seen it all, they actually came to a different conclusion. They have seen that when you meditate on this reality, you discover something else. That's a different story. You don't, it is not my concern tonight if you are theistic or not, if you see this or not. But the point is that there is a great mystery. One of the Greek philosophers always kept saying that he was stupid and ignorant. And people said, how does it come that you feel ignorant when you are so knowledgeable? And he simply said, it is like this. This is the circle of your knowledge, and the surface of this means how much you know. And the out of it, the circumference of it, shows how much contact you have with the unknown infinite around you. And he said, this is the circle of my knowledge. I know definitely more than you do, but my contact with the infinite outside is much bigger. So where you have one question, I have ten. For me, the universe is much more mysterious than for you. It is exactly as another great spirit said, the more you know, the more you realize you don't know. That is the wonderful mystery of it. If you can have this feeling of the mystery, it's also a great step because this feeling of mystery is again nothing else but Ishvara Pranidana, but manifested under a camouflaged form. That is why yoga encourages this kind of thing. People who want to learn about forbidden science, alternative healing, mysterious possibilities of the body, make exploration of unknown places, understand unknown forces of physics and of nature, because this is also a form of discovery. It shows and in you that this spirit is not asleep. There is still, it's still working. You still have got the seeker thing in you. And the yogis say, don't let it fall asleep. There are people, yogis, even when they are old, Swami Shivananda, when he was 76 years of age, he was like a child, he was the most furious of them all. 
he wanted to try everything he wanted to he was not just old and dull and bored on the contrary cultivate this spirit of of the seeker never let this inner child die never let this feeling of mystery die as said we could keep on speaking about this a lot because the whole spirituality is focused on it is meant to awaken it more and more and it leads to the highest accomplishment of the human being if this feeling would be a devouring fire in you you would reach samadhi tonight it's as much as that when this curiosity when this need is indeed strong in you that is why in yoga you can say that this aspiration awakens more and more the more you purify the more your mind becomes clear the more you start seeing things as they are the body the reality the more you start understanding that there is an inherent mystery in this reality that there is so much to know that there is so much to explore it is a pity to lose your life in small trite things that there is a beautiful adventure out there that we can reach the infinite that it's, we can spend the life in a most thrilling way instead of just sitting and doing what our grandmother did and this is the end of the story about Ishvara Pranidana this is also the end of the Yama and Niyama with this most beautiful of them which says let your spirit fly let your spirit soar this was a live recording of Swami Vivekananda Saraswati for more information visit us on agamayoga.com or go directly to agamayoga.com slash downloads